Week 8, we have begun to look at the work of Christ. We spent the first six weeks focusing in on the person of Christ, who Jesus is, answering the question that Jesus himself asked, who do people say that I am, who do you say that I am? And now this, we're entering into the second week of looking at the work of Christ. Last week we looked at the threefold office, prophet, priest, and king. And this week we are going to look at what the church has said historically about the atonement. So this week we're going to spend time uh, doing historical theology. So under one on your handout, we are going to look at atonement theories in church history. For those of you filling out the blanks, atonement theories in church history. We're going to cover broad swaths of time. And the first we're going to look at is the church fathers. Those two two blanks underneath atonement theories in church history. It's going to be church fathers. Or if you want to be nerdy, uh, the patristic era. What's up, Andy? How you doing, brother? All right, so the church fathers or patristic era. So when we're looking at the patristic era, we're looking at post-apostolic church. So second, third, fourth, fifth centuries. Um, The post-apostolic church did not have a clear idea of the atonement. And what we mean by that is not to say that they had no view of the atonement. They did. Uh, But in the same way that we've seen with the person of Christ in the 4th and 5th centuries, there wasn't as much clarity on the person of Christ as it relates to person-nature distinctions and Jesus being fully man and fully God, Uh, the Son not taking upon himself another person, uh, but personalizing a nature, all those things happening in the 4th and 5th centuries with these early church creeds, there's greater clarity being brought uh, onto these particular issues. But with the atonement, there really isn't a lot of dispute, there's not a lot of debate, and uh, there's not a lot of heresies tied specifically to the cross and the atonement, and so there's not a pressing need for the church to have greater clarity on the atonement. So, the church thought about the atonement, they had views on the atonement, and we'll talk about that, Uh, but there was not tremendous clarity. So, the first major idea that that we'll see um, put forward is what's called recapitulation. Anybody heard of recapitulation? Chandler has, the seminary nerd in the back. Recapitulation. Uh, to, To recapitulate is like a retelling um, of a story. Uh, And so recapitulation 
It's like repetition across the storyline of Scripture. You see these same kind of patterns. Um, but with, as it relates to atonement, recapitulation, a uh, major proponent is Irenaeus, early church father Irenaeus. That's the parentheses for you. So Irenaeus... So Irenaeus is putting forward uh, this idea of recapitulation. Uh, also Athanasius. Athanasius, you'll remember we talked about him uh, with the early church creeds. Athanasius was instrumental in defending uh, orthodox uh, views on the person and natures of Christ over and against the Arians. He actually got... Um, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Uh, he got um, rejected and then sent into exile uh, by the Arians uh, during, the, during his life multiple times, Athanasius did. But Irenaeus and both, uh, both Irenaeus and Athanasius are both putting forward this idea of recapitulation. And essentially, with the atonement, it is that Christ is the, the last and greater Adam. Okay, so they see Adam and Christ, the Adam-Christ connection. It's extremely important. And basically, everywhere that Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Okay, and they're applying that to the atonement. Uh, so Adam's sin brought, brought two disastrous effects on the human condition. One, we are, were corrupted. Uh, and then secondly, we lose our God-likeness, uh, tied to like image of God. Whereas uh, uh, Christ restores those things through his obedient life. Um, <clears throat> so Adam enjoyed something called uh, the super-added gift or super-added grace. Uh, and, and therefore, in sin, losing that, we lose our immor immortality. And that affects everyone because we all participated in Adam's sin. Adam is our representative in the garden. And again, primary emphasis here is that where, where Adam failed, Christ is succeeding. So Christ's work is restoring uh, humanity, humanity to our immortality that we enjoyed uh, in Adam. So, Irenaeus sees Christ's incarnation and the cross as a divine human moment or movement of humiliation, uh, looked at from the point of view of his willing obedience as the Son of God. And it climaxes in his death. And Christ's obedience is absolutely necessary for, for our atonement. We need someone to obey for us. So he's picking up really, really helpful themes of, of obedience, right? Adam's disobedience, Adam's sin, how that's affected us, Christ undoing these things. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's, there's still just not a tremendous amount of clarity as it relates to like, oh, okay, well, but how? How did Christ's obedience help us? Why was his death? necessary. Um, there's, there's not real precision here in, in the early church and really up until the Reformation. 
we're not really seeing a tremendous amount of clarity in terms of the atonement. So just a couple, couple, of, couple of quotes here from Irenaeus. Uh, For by no other means could we have obtained to incorruption and immortality unless we had been united to incorruptibility and immortality. But how could we be joined to incorruptibility and immortality unless, first, incorruptibility and immortality had become that which we also are, so that the corruptible might be swallowed up by incorruptibility and the mortal by immortality, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So he's saying there's no way that we're going to be able to inherit the kingdom, no way that we're going to be, be able to like undo sin, not be corrupt, like move beyond the mortal to that which is immortal, unless immortality and, and perfection itself incarnate came and became as we are, we're united to that, um, that person, and then cor- uh, corruption and death are swallowed up uh, by his work. But again, not a lot of clarity, uh, not a lot of clarity as to like how the mechanics of, of the atonement are actually accomplishing our redemption. So recapitulation is really helpful because it highlights a lot of the Adam-Christ typology that we've already unfolded. Uh, but again, not a lot of clarity in terms of like, okay, but what does that actually mean for us? Uh, the, the corruption being swallowed up by incorruptibility. You know, the mortal being swallowed up by immortality. Like, what does that actually mean? Uh, and again, because there wasn't really a lot of argument, a lot of debate, there's just not a lot of pressing uh, for further explanation or greater precision. Athanasius says a couple of things that I think are helpful. Uh, So he would argue that by taking a body like our own, um, both men are going to argue that the incarnation is absolutely necessary. Uh, But taking a body like our own, uh, Jesus is likewise liable to corruption and death. He says uh, he surrendered his body to death instead of all and offered it to the Father. This he did out of sheer love for us, so that in his death all might die, and the law of sin thereby be abolished, because having fulfilled in his body that for which it was appointed, it was thereafter voided of its power for men. Okay, so in becoming incarnate, in submitting himself unto death, he has broken the power of sin. But again, it's, okay, that's, that's helpful, but how, how is that? How is that helpful in terms of its application to us? Um, <clears throat> so the cross, the resurrection is the strongest proof of the destruction of sin. And uh, both men are going to strongly argue that Jesus serves as our rep- representative. But they're not going to stop there. They're also going to say that it's really important that Christ ser- served at our su- as our substitute. But they're not really going to fill that out very well. So... This, the idea of recapitulation, where Jesus is the last Adam, again, strong representation themes, but the, the substitution aspect of it is, is a little, it's not that they're not arguing for it, but they're not really filling it out for us. They're not helping us to understand, okay, why did Jesus have to be our substitute? Does that make sense? Yes? Yes. 
No, 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 no. Absolutely not. No, 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 no. Just not full. Just not a lot of clarity. Yeah. Yeah, I'm only going to cover one heresy tonight, and that's later. And I write in parentheses heretics next to it. Yeah, there you go. Uh, all right, so uh, another another view. Uh, third, uh, second, third centuries becomes pretty popular. Uh, so under one, one, two, uh, ransom to Satan. Ransom to Satan. Ransom to Satan. Can anybody think of a, a scripture verse that speaks to this idea of ransom? It's okay if you can't. Mark ten forty five. The son, of, the son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, many in the church, uh, particularly as it relates to just suffering, suffering uh, in the early church under uh, hostility from Romans, other Gentiles, from being persecuted by the Jews... Um, <clears throat> they look at they look at the the difficulty of living in this world. They look at the words of Jesus talking about him being a ransom for many, uh, and look at how their situation isn't really necessarily improving in in the future. And they the, this idea of ransom to Satan as the is the the major point of the atonement begins to develop, and Origen is the one who's most often tied to it, uh, but essentially, uh, Athanasius and Irenaeus would talk about in passing the, the idea that Jesus overcomes Satan, but really not pushing it very far at all, um, but because we love obscure questions and pushing things to the wall as far as we can, and asking hypothetical questions that Scripture doesn't clearly uh, present an answer for us, the, the question then becomes, okay, well, as a ransom for many, well, then a ransom to whom? A ransom to whom? And so many in the early church start saying, oh, well, Jesus was a ransom to Satan. Um, combining the language of, like, the God of this world. Uh, the, the prince of the power of the air who blinds the eyes of unbelievers and enslaves them through fear of death, Hebrews 2. Um, so while Irenaeus and Athanasius are making just passing allusions to what Christ did as it relates to the devil, people begin to ask the question, to whom is the ransom paid? And Justin Martyr is probably the first person to say that it's the devil, that it's the, the ransom is paid to Satan. And we're not going to push it too far because there's going to, get, there's going to be another view that develops this a little bit more. Um, but the, the major issue is that Jesus triumphs over the devil. Uh, does, not, does not relate or does not really answer, again, why did Jesus have to die? 
Why did Jesus have to die? What would his death do in paying ransom to Satan? Um, but the early church fathers would often talk about Jesus at the cross being, being bait, uh, a, a, a bait on a hook that the devil bites, and that's how God gets him, hooks, hooks Satan through the ransom of the cross or the bait of Jesus, gets Satan by getting him to bite the hook. Um, and that's how he is defeated. So, again, very general, like, more vague understandings of what the, what the atonement did. Not tremendous amount of clarity, and that really continues for uh, several hundred years. Maybe close to a thousand. A thousand years or so. So you have got recapitulation, which includes ideas of representation and substitution, and ransom to Satan, which there's not really clear substitutionary uh, themes there, but, but representational for sure. Um, and so there, there are differences that begin to occur between the Eastern and Western churches, Eastern Orthodoxy and the West, which would become tied to Rome. Um, <clears throat> and these differences are, uh, are largely largely tied to understanding what does it mean to be human and, and what is sin and what is the, what's the entailment of sin against a holy God. That begins to be developed in the West in particular, specifically as it, as it comes to the Reformation. But before we get to the Reformation, we come to the uh, medieval era. So that's the next, it's, not, it's above 1-3, the medieval era. Or the Dark Ages. This is, uh, yeah, this is within two to three hundred years. Yes, so for sure. What, what happened, the doctrine there was purely jurisdictional, and somehow it's been uh, I don't know that it's, I mean, and I'm sure misunderstanding is, is part of it. Um, but the reality is, is that until, until you get really pressed to explain exactly what certain scriptures mean because other people are saying hey what you're saying it means isn't what it actually means like until you're pressed like that you really don't have a whole lot of clarity oftentimes um, and that's what we talked about with the early church creeds that's just what heresy did so with the heresies Arianism and modalism and uh, Apollinarianism Nestorianism all these churches that were attacking the doctrine of God the doctrine of Christ it forced the it forced the, the the early church and the church of the of the uh, patristic age to really start to think carefully about what what is it uh, at least as it relates to the person of Christ, like when when the son son of Jesus says I am when a, you know before Abraham was I am. Like, how do we put that together uh, without his divinity swallowing up his humanity? 
So they're, they're, they're building upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. That's Ephesians 2.20. So there, there are, there's, there's scripture, which is a final authority. Uh, but the reality is, is that we don't always rightly understand scripture. And so the church has just had greater and greater clarity on particular issues over time, typically as heresies pop up, uh, that forces the church to think carefully about what is this particular text of Scripture saying, or these texts of Scripture as it relates to this issue, this doctrinal area. And then as we are thinking about this, what are the implications thereof? And so... Again, as it relates to the person of Christ, there is a lot of precision within the fourth, by the 4th, 5th centuries. Um, up until 6th, 7th, with the, with the rise of Islam. Uh, why? Because there are so many heresies that are attacking either the Trinity, or the deity of Christ, or the humanity of Christ. No one's really, everyone's saying, Jesus died for sins. Jesus died for his people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, but what does that mean? What, 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 is it, what does that mean that he died for his people? Why did he have to die for his people? Uh, so it's not that people are denying it. There's just not tremendous amounts of clarity. In the same way that like up until fairly recently, it was just no one disputed the fact that people are made in God's image, male and female. And God determines that by his speech, not by our speech. But now that's an issue. And so, okay, we've got to think through with all of the debates over transgenderism or same-sex immorality or all of these kinds of things. Um, is sexual preference, is sexual behavior tied to identity? The world would say yes. The scriptures would say no. No, who you are in terms of your... Sexual, that's, that's not your identity. And so today we're having to deal with issues of theological anthropology or the doctrine of man because we're, we're having to answer the question that seems to be hard to answer these days. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a woman? Um, and why is that happening? Because of, because of heresy. Uh, and so it's not really until you, you see an the Reformation, where there are issues over, like, how were people justified before God? That you then start to press into, okay, what did Christ's death actually accomplish? What did the cross achieve? And then you, have, you begin to have greater clarity with Luther and Calvin. They're not arguing something different than the early church. They're just pressing in more and coming up with more uh, theological conclusions or implications on this particular doctrinal area. Um, but we're, and we're still doing that today. So it's just the first several hundred years, it's, the church isn't really having to deal with it. So it's there in the Bible, we just have to understand it rightly. And that's what the church has been trying to do as it relates to whatever doctrinal area over the past 2,000 years. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. All right. Uh, medieval era. Middle, medieval era. Uh, first one we'll cover, we'll look at, um, yeah, we'll look at moral influence. 
Moral Influence, Peter Abelard. Uh, I think he's an 11th century guy. Um, <clears throat> so, we're looking at the medieval age, uh, dark ages, and a guy, that, guy by the name of Peter Abelard. argues that the atonement is primarily about uh, moral influence. Um, <clears throat> so, in other words, Jesus' life and His work as an obedient son was primarily in order to give us a moral example to follow. He was, he was the supreme picture of obedience, virtue, and Peter, Peter Abelard's not wrong. He's not wrong because what does the author of Hebrews argue in Hebrews 11 to 12? He gives us a picture of all these Old Testament saints, and he says, look at their faith. Imitate their faith. Look at all these wonderful things that the, the, the saints in the Old Testament were able to do by faith. Look at what the Lord did in their lives. And then some of them suffered because they were looking forward to, to promises by faith that were yet to come. And then the, the, the supreme example that the author of Hebrews gives in Hebrews 12, 1 to 3 is, in, and consider Christ. Um, <clears throat> let's just go ahead and read that. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and, and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus as a moral example. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Um, <clears throat> now, um, Peter Abelard is going gonna, is gonna to argue that the, the atonement is, is primarily about God showing his love for humanity and the moral example is the center of the atonement he is not going to be able to answer, like, why did Jesus have to die? He's not really going to address, like, how, do you, how can you live a moral life if you are a slave to sin? And so it's going to be the moral influence theory that's picked up later, uh, seven, eight hundred years later, during the Enlightenment, when guys are going to assume that we can approach anything, any issue, any question uh, with the use of human reason and be able to approach issues in an unbiased fashion to know truth. It, that assumes a, a kind of a good view of humanity, <laughs> that sin hasn't affected the way that you think about issues. Uh, the Enlightenment and liberal theology of the 18th century, 19th century, particularly in Germany, are going to build on Abelard's moral influence theory 
and basically argue for like men as inherently good and we just need an example to follow. But again, this does not answer the question of why the cross? Well, what in the world is the cross all about? I mean, yes, okay, he, he gives us an example of, of righteous suffering and, and death to the point of death. But what did his death actually accomplish? Was it only about an example to follow? Um, and so there are going to be a lot of views, or a lot of, lot of things uh, that are wrong with that particular idea that are going to be picked up later in church history, uh, by, mostly by heretics, and, <clears throat> and then taken to uh, way out into left field that are very, very, very unhelpful. This, unfortunately, is probably a pretty predominant view of the world today that Jesus is a great moral teacher. I mean, there's nothing about sin, there's nothing about God's wrath, there's nothing about substitution or representation or anything like that. It's that we, we just needed a really good, we really need a, a, a moral, uh, morally upstanding guy to follow, like a great Gandhi-like guy, and, and Jesus is that guy. Uh, but the big view that um, we're going we're gonna to build on a little bit, little bit later uh, this evening is going to be at the top of the insert, or the top of the, the inside of your pamphlet, 1-4, is what's called satisfaction theory. Satisfaction theory, this, again, this is during uh, medieval times. This is the beginning of the 12th century. And the major proponent of this is a guy named Anselm. Anselm Satisfaction Theory. Anselm wrote uh, a book that underneath, underneath the 1-4, um, you'll see those three lines with a question. He wrote the book called Cur Deus Homo. I mean, there's no question mark in the Latin, but it's a question. Uh, why did God become man? Uh, this is hundreds of years after Augustine. <laughs> Cut that out. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. It'll be heard by the ones and ones of people. The guy who taught Augustine. I don't know who you're talking about. Maybe, maybe I should know that, but I don't know that. Um... So Anselm was the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, during the 11th into the 12th century centuries, just when uh, England was becoming England. Now, do we during the the during the Middle Ages, medieval era? Uh, do we know the system of government that is obviously there's there the early proto monarchy. Feudalism, yes, 
we're going to keep that one in. We're going to edit the other one out, Augustine. All right, excellent. Well done, Cole. All right, feudalism. Anybody remember uh, what that is, Cole? Oh, hold on, hold on, microphone. Where, where are we? Where are we? <laughs> no, that, that doesn't need to be on. Cole, Cole's going to answer. Yes, uh, so you had these, underneath the king, you had these feudal lords uh, who had serfs, which were basically the peasants, working the land, and they owed, in, in, in this period, even, even in Western Europe, it's, it's much more similar to uh, Eastern Eastern culture today, Asian culture today, honor and shame. So in this feudalistic uh, age, you had these lords who had property, and the people were the serfs, common folk like us, would have been working uh, the land and giving proceeds to our feudal lord who would then provide us protection uh, and food and all of these kinds of things. And <clears throat> honor and shame are a big deal in, in, this, in this culture, in 11th and 12th century England. Honor, shame. Uh, and so, as it relates to the concept of honor, uh, an insult was regarded as a stain upon a man's honor. Uh, dishonoring a feudal lord... Uh, was an attack on on the man himself, and so the only way that dishonor could be undone is by exacting uh, satisfaction that would then wipe out the dishonor. So a man's honor, a feudal lord who was dishonor, was owed satisfaction. By those underneath him. Um, now, while Anselm is <clears throat> certainly heavily influenced by the by feudalism, he's not only influenced by feudalism. He is looking at the scriptures and seeing those aspects of his own culture that are accurately reflecting uh, the 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 truths of scripture. And he's beginning to synthesize, okay, this is what the atonement is. Like, we have dishonored the Lord through our sin. And he's not like a feudal Lord. He is like, ontologically, he is perfection. He is indescribable, supreme holiness. And the only way that God's honor can be satisfied and restored in a way that doesn't involve us just being destroyed is by His honor being satisfied through the work of Jesus. And so through the work of Jesus serving as our represent, representative, and He's probably the first to be the most, ex, like, most explicit about Jesus being our substitute, 
Jesus as our substitute incurs the penalty of dishonor that our sin has brought on the Lord, and he, Jesus has satisfied God's demands and brought about reconciliation. So Anselm has like a, a much better view of sin and humanity than Peter Abelard and moral influence, for sure. <laughs> Why don't you just leave the mic with Cole? Not, uh, I mean, the person who might be the closest is going to be Abelard, but I don't think he's going to go as far as the heretics later who would take what he said and run even further to the left. <laughs> Elijah doesn't have any questions, right? Okay. Happy to be here. All right. Um, so... After satisfaction theory, again, what I hope that you're starting to see, what, what you're seeing is, one, our culture strongly influences how we read the scriptures. That's just a reality. Again, that's what postmodernism has helped to see, is that we're, we are biased people. I mean, at the end of the day, we're biased people. We need God to speak to us, to help us to see the world rightly, uh, to renew our hearts and our minds so that we can read the scriptures rightly. But even then, our preconceptions, our presuppositions need to be sharpened and refined and renewed by uh, God's revelation of the world and of, of himself and us. Uh, but Anselm, Anselm is influenced by his culture. Abelard is influenced by his culture. Uh, Irenaeus and Athanasius and, and then Origen with Ransom to Theory, influenced by culture. Um, and they're, they're looking at biblical truths and seeing the world, and they're trying to merge these, these points together. So the next period we're, we're looking at uh, is the Reformation slash post-Reformation era. So really from like 1500s to mid-18th century. What's that? Bondage of the will. Yes, so we're definitely going to have some Luther action. What do you say? 1517. All right, so it has, it has, it has been many years since that um, nailing of 95 Theses, for which we give thanks. All right, so the, the Reformers... Uh, 1.5, it's really with the reformers that we're going to see the greatest clarity. Again, this is, and, and this is a common argument. Common argument, 1.5 uh, is penal substitution. In parentheses, it's the reformers. I can't, we can't just put one person. It's Luther, Calvin. Um, penal substitution. I hesitated even putting penal substitution er, uh, here because this isn't a Reformation idea, okay? Penal substitution is something that is present 
in a variety of ways ever since New Testament's written, okay? Irenaeus, Athanasius are picking these themes up with recapitulation. Origin, even with Origin and his ransom theory to Satan, uh, he's going to still argue that the atonement is a propitiation, uh, which we'll talk about in, in, the weeks, in a couple weeks. Um, and so, again, it is the reformers here that are going to provide the greatest clarity in putting the scriptures together and helping us to think precisely about what exactly it is that the cross achieved. And so there, Luther, Calvin are going to argue, building upon Anselm from four or five hundred years earlier, that Jesus died, his atonement is one of penal substitution. Uh, and a big point with penal substitution is the idea of retributive justice. Retributive justice. Retributive justice is the justice of the scriptures. So it is, it is God giving a just, just consequence and penalty uh, for disobedience and moral rebellion. What is undergirding the old covenant eye for an eye is retributive justice. It is weighing it out. If someone takes out an eye, it's, it's got to be equal punishment. Okay, it's got to be even-handed. But it is certainly punishment for wrongdoing. And uh, we'll, we'll come back to, to penal substitution in just a second, and actually we're, we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about it. Uh, penal substitution. Okay, I'm going to give you, I'm going to just give you a little glimpse. I'm going to argue over the next few weeks that penal substitution is the heart of the atonement. That when we're talking about what is the nature of the atonement, penal substitution. That's the foundation of the atonement. All these other things are true. Moral influence. Did Jesus come to be our moral influence? Absolutely. Uh, is that the heart of the atonement? No. What is the major issue? The major issue uh, and penal substitution is going to address the major issue at the heart of the atonement. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, but yes, did he come to satisfy honor? Yes. And that gets the closest to Jesus serving as a, as a substitute uh, under uh, the penalty that we deserve from the Lord. Uh, did, did Jesus serve uh, as the last Adam? And did he obey where Adam disobeyed? Absolutely. That is not the heart of the atonement, though. All of those things spring out of penal substitution. But we'll, talk, we'll, we'll keep talking about that. Uh, one six, uh, Socinianism. All right, let me. These are the heretics Socinius and the Socinians. We are not fans of Socinianism. Socinianism. Um, anybody know who modern-day Socinians are? Modern-day Arians or Jehovah's Witnesses? The Socinians are post-Reformation. Um, no, but that, but that would 
uh, be close. Oh, I'm just going to let, let y'all keep struggling. Modem modalism. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like a group, a group of today who, uh, that is common, there's one downtown, at least one downtown. Unitarians. Unitarians. Yes. So Socinianism, that is Unitarians in the post-Reformation age. No, no, that's not that's not relevant. That's not relevant. We'll talk about that later. Talk talk about it later. Okay. All right. So, with Socinians, um, they rejected the Trinity. Right? Uh, they rejected the Trinity. They rejected the deity of Jesus. They argued for something uh, that should be akin to adoptionism. Uh, they rejected original sin. They rejected divine foreknowledge. Uh, so, in terms of the atonement, they would argue that no one can serve as a substitute for someone else. Like, what you merit is what you merit. What somebody else merits cannot be credited to you. No one can suffer for you. The idea that God requires some measure of satisfaction undercuts mercy. The idea of retributive justice is gross. So they argued for something called voluntarism, voluntarism, and that is where God voluntarily forgives sin, essentially by sweeping it under the rug. There's not, there's not any need for atonement. And so what you get is universalism. And the cross is not about Jesus being a penal substitute or satisfying anything or anything like that. It's just the ultimate expression of God's love for humanity. You know, some would argue that. Some would argue, make that argument. She wants you to say something. <laughs> that there are people on the podcast. <laughs> that there. <laughs> so she is wanting you to say what you just said. That there are better ways. There seemed like there are better ways to argue that. There you go. Well done. Well done. Thank you. Yeah. Let's. Uh, let's need to get that mic away from Chandler. I think is what we need to do. I think is what we need to do. So anyway, all right. So, uh, Socinians. I'm trying to think about when they, they're, she something like that or whatever. I think that was all a deep fake. Um, all right. So 16th century maybe is the rise of Socinianism, and so from mid to late 1500s and on is what we're looking at at the the rise of Unitarian Universalists. Now, there's a mediating position between penal substitution, which is the position of the reformers on the atonement, and 
Socinians over in left field. And the mediating uh, position is uh, called governmental theory. And uh, Hugo Grotius is the first major proponent of governmental theory. And uh, governmental theory is trying to walk the line between penal substitution and uh, what the Socinianism or the Socinianists are arguing. Uh, governmental theory is arguing for what's called uh, rectoral justice, not retributive. So rectoral justice is this idea of like governing justice, which is where we're getting governmental theory. Governing justice, God is a uh, legislative moral ruler. Uh, he makes laws that he puts into effect, right? Okay, that's true. But when we're looking at uh, justice, uh, this idea of justice is arguing that God is primarily looking for a proper uh, governance of the universe. And, and so with, with rectoral justice, the law, the law is not God himself, uh, but the law actually exists outside of God. The law is not tied to God's moral character or nature, not to his will uh, in the same way um, <clears throat> that a judge can like relax the law as long as it helps to maintain the proper governance. Uh, God can relax the law and provide forgiveness through the cross of Jesus because the cross shows that sin is a major issue. Sin's a major issue. Um, but they're wanting to, he's not wanting to affirm penal substitution uh, because Grotius, Grotius is uh, one of the Remonstrants or early Arminians. And so this is the historic view, atonement view of Arminianism. Arminius actually held to penal substitution. Uh, just all the guys who took what he argued developed this. Because penal substitution is tied to, like, God's elect. Uh, definite atonement. Limited atonement. Jesus dying for particular people, not people universally. And so with Grotius, Grotius is arguing that essentially in the atonement, God is relaxing the requirements of the law because of him being satisfied with Jesus' work on the cross. Um, <clears throat> with, with this particular view, uh, and this is like early 17th century, 
Do, can you think of another major view that might be influencing Grotius' view of God? Because he's arguing that God himself is not the standard. The law exists outside of God. And God is just looking at the law external to him. Come on, Cole. What's that? Uh, like early, early to mid-17th century? Naturalism is probably a couple of hundred years later, but you're, you, you, see it, you see it with a lot of the beginnings of our, our, our nation, particularly with our founding fathers. We've talked about this. Deism. Deism. Yeah, right? So with this particular view like of God being uninvolved, in the, in the everyday operations of the world, him winding up the universe like a clock and then letting it go, and him not being personally offended by sin. Um, <clears throat> this kind of idea of justice with a law that's external to God being, being the, the, the standard by which he judges humanity like this this fits pretty well with that particular doctrine of God which is becoming increasingly popular during this time and and particularly over the next 100 150 years so Grotius is trying to like walk the middle between penal substitution over here God is personally offended by your sin, and he pours out his very personal wrath on the Son, who serves both as represent, uh, representative, as Irenaeus and Athanasius would argue in recapitulation, and substitute. And the Socinians over here that are like, God will just love you. He's just going to sweep it under the rug. Don't, don't worry about it. God is love. Look at the cross. That's love. Um, <clears throat> Grotius is going to say, ah, in the middle here. There is a universalism, universalistic nature to the atonement and that Jesus is going to provide a universal atonement, but Arminians will eventually develop the idea that it's, it's limited in scope and that's tied to the expression of faith, which is also tied to prevenient grace. But that's a little bit later. All right, one eight. One eight. Christus Victor. This is early twentieth century. Christus Victor. Christus Victor, Gustav Allen, is arguing for uh, Christus Victor, Swedish guy, 
during the early 20th, early 20th century. And he's building on ransom theory to Satan. And so what he is arguing is that essentially Jesus came and lived an obedient life, the son lived an obedient life, and he died in order to defeat the powers. Christ is the victorious one. He defeated Satan, but he didn't just defeat Satan, he defeated the world. He de defeated all the cosmic forces and powers of darkness, uh, Satan and all of his minions. Uh, he defeated all of those things. So, the victory of God brings about reconciliation between himself and the world because uh, evil's been defeated. Um, and it, in my mind, it, may, it, makes, it makes sense that this, this theme of atonement would be like happening right around the time of like the World War I and uh, shortly before war, World War II, right? Like the war to end all wars. You know, as you're thinking about the atonement, uh, evil's been defeated. This is what Jesus has done. Of course, he, uh, he stops teaching before World War II starts. Um, <clears throat> but he's picking up just the strong language of Paul with Christ is the victorious one. Like, he has defeated the powers. And it's true. Like, this, I'm not, we're not saying that this is not true. This is true. This is certainly true. Um... Biggest proponents today, because Gustav Allen is not alive, um, open theists. So Greg Boyd, um, uh, what's his face? I'm trying to remember the other major open theist. Greg Boyd is the most popular one. So a lot of, a lot of the books that you'll get from Greg Boyd, uh, particularly as it relates to Jesus' work in his life, ministry, and the cross, is like defeating the powers. I mean, and it's good. I mean, it's good stuff. It's just I would encourage you to read them, uh, even though what he's writing about <laughs> with Jesus defeating the powers is really helpful, uh, because everything else that he's putting forward is garbage. Uh, but Christus Victor building upon ransom theory to Satan. They would not. Allen would not say that Satan was the one to whom the ransom was paid. It's just that Jesus came and he beat all the evil forces, um, obviously Satan included, does not answer the question, why did Jesus have to die? So in, with any theory of atonement, like we, we've, got to, we've got to ask the question, yeah, okay, but why did Jesus have to die? He did not have to die to be a moral example. He could have lived a perfectly moral and upstanding, obedient life and then ascended into heaven if that was the purpose of the atonement. He didn't have to die. He could have been an obedient, faithful Adam and undone all the things and obeyed where, uh, in his temptation where Adam disobeyed in temptation uh, without him having to be uh, a substitute. Um, he, he could have satisfied uh, the Lord's dishonor uh, he could have satisfied the relaxing of God's law. Why did he have to die? That It comes back over and over and over again as we're talking about the atonement. And the major question that we're asking is, what did the cross achieve? What did the cross achieve? Why did Jesus have to die? 
And again, I'm going to argue over the next two, three weeks that at its heart, penal substitution or penal substitutionary atonement is the only view of the atonement that is going to offer a sound biblical explanation for the question, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? But I don't want to get too much into it, but we can't avoid talking about penal substitution when we're looking at the history of the church. Uh, 1-9, the kaleidoscope view. This is a new one. It's 1-9. What's that? That's about that. Kaleidoscope view. And a uh, major guy arguing this is uh, Joel Green, a guy named Joel Green, New Testament scholar. Kaleidoscope view. And what's interesting about the kaleidoscope view is that Green, Joel Green, is, it will rightly argue, listen, the atonement, Jesus does a whole bunch of things in the atonement. So, Christus Victor, yes. Satisfying God's honor, yes. Um, recapitulation, yes. Moral example, yes. But then when it comes to penal substitution, he says, absolutely not. No, that's the worst. No way. So, kaleidoscope is like, no, God has done a kaleidoscope of things, a whole wide array of different things that the Lord has done. And when you look at the atonement, it's like looking at a kaleidoscope. See all these beautiful different pictures as you turn it um, and see different perspectives on the atonement. But he says everything but penal substitution, which is just so funny. Um, but that's, that's most of the world, right? Um, and unfortunately, like large segments of the quote-unquote church would reject penal substitution too. We'll, we'll talk. We'll, I, I mentioned in a, ser- a sermon uh, maybe a few months back about a, uh, there being a dispute over the lyrics of a hymn, a popular hymn. Uh, and this is related to penal substitution. But we'll talk about that yeah, next week or the week after. Um, <clears throat> so, major issue, major issue under 1 9. Who, you can say, or what, who is the object of the atonement? Who's the object of the atonement? And I'm going to argue that Scripture and penal substitution is going to teach that God is the object of the atonement. In fact, God is both the object, the subject, and the object of the atonement. He is the one who provides the atonement and he is the, the object for whom the atonement is provided. And it's really only satisfaction theory and penal substitution that, that argues that God is the object of the atonement. When you look at all of these other views, while there are certainly true aspects to each of them, uh, they really only deal... They deal mostly, if not exclusively, with uh, horizontal aspects of human relationship 
or horizontal aspects across creatures. Uh, they never really address the vertical aspect. Whereas like when David's writing in Psalm 51, he's going to say, after killing a man, murdering a man, after sleeping with his wife and then stealing her for himself, he, David's going to say, against you and you alone have I sinned, O Lord. Uh, and penal substitution is going to be the, the particular view of the atonement that's going to argue that this vertical aspect is the primary focus. And when you get the vertical right, you will get the horizontal right. But when you look at everything else, it's, there, it's, all, it's all horizontal. It's not, it's not people being uh, made right with a God who stands opposed to them. So, when you look at these different views of the atonement that are maybe arguing for like, no, this is the heart of the atonement, or this is the heart of the atonement, uh, your view of the atonement reflects your doctrine of God. So, how you view God is going to view your understanding of the atonement. Like, so if you see God like the Socinians, where he's okay with sin, his justice is not really justice, uh, and he just lets things slide, uh, maybe on a curve, but he, he lets things slide, like, then your atonement view is going to be awful. And it's going to be one where it's like, well, you know, it's just about God showing you his love, and he sweeps all your sin under the rug. And uh, even if you don't want it, like he'll sweep your, I mean, because he saves everybody, right? Universalist. So what we need to do in terms of understanding the atonement is we need to understand the relationship between God, the law, and sin. Is the law something external to God? I mean, penal substitution is going to say that God himself is the law. And so when we have sinned against him, we have sinned against a person. We have sinned against God. And so his wrath towards us is not purely impersonal, but also quite personal. All right, so those are, those are just like real brief snapshot of, of historical views of the atonement. Really not until you get to the Reformation that you're starting to see greater and greater clarity being uh, applied. Language, clear language, more precise language being tied to uh, views of the atonement, and that is, in the Reformation, a lot of it is because you're starting to capture more of the legal aspect of what Paul's writing about in terms of justification. Um, <clears throat> so, we're going to turn from historical theology, and I'm just going to give you uh, the, I would say, at minimum, it's these eight themes. These eight themes that are given in Scripture that are going to be helpful for us in understanding the nature of the atonement or what did the cross achieve. Okay, so it's like 2-1 to 2-8, right? All right. So... First biblical theme, and we're going to spend next week and the week after going through each of these each of these themes, looking at the biblical data. So the first is obedience. Two one, obedience. 
then we're going to look at sacrifice. Because like you can you can open Webster's dictionary and say, what does sacrifice mean? But what Webster's going to tell you about what sacrifice is and what scriptures are going to tell you about sacrifice, two very different things. I sacrifice lots of things in order to love my kids, but that is not the sacrifice that the Bible's talking about. So we, we have to be able to understand what is exactly the biblical context that's defining these terms. We need to understand that if we're going to come to a right conclusion because otherwise our cultural ideas of, of these terms are going to unnecessarily influence how we see them and then how we see the cross. Uh, so obedience, sacrifice, this is a really popular one, propitiation. Propitiation. Uh, redemption. Oh, so like redemption, that's kind of like redeeming a coupon, right? Not so much. Redemption like Exodus redemption. Reconciliation. Lots of talk these days about reconciliation, right? Do you think that everybody is using that word the way that the Bible uses that word. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. All right, uh, justification. We're not going to get into new perspective on Paul and all that kind of stuff, but that's, this has been hotly disputed since the Reformation and hotly disputed over the past 30, 40 years. Uh, conquest. Or Christus Victor. Is what, 2-7? Is that 2-7? Yeah, 2-7. And then a uh, moral example. So, <clears throat> obedience like Irenaeus and Athanasius with recapitulation, they hammered hard at obedience. And satisfaction theory from Anselm, that, that definitely hit on satisfying wrath, satisfying the consequences of dishonoring uh, the Lord, the perfect Lord. I mean, Peter Abelard, I mean, he, he was on to something. Uh, Gustav Allen and uh, Origen separated by, you know, 14, 1500 years. Uh, they were onto something when they were talking about Jesus being a ransom and Jesus defeating the powers, defeating Satan. Um, <clears throat> I mean, Grotius talking about the law, that's important, but like we've got to We've got to define justification in light of how Scripture defines justification. We've got to define the law in terms of how the Scriptures define the law. And so all of these different historical views on the atonement like have touched on different things, but at the heart, what I'm going to argue is that penal substitution is the, is the heart of the atonement. 
and out of penal substitution, that is where you start to see all of these other theories of the atonement starting to make sense. But if you don't have penal substitutionary atonement, you don't have moral example. And you don't have Christus Victor. Um, <clears throat> today's, today's most popular views on the atonement, uh, probably moral example, as uh, unbelievers. Um, so Sinianism and Unitarian Universalist Church. Uh, governmental view, God relaxing the law. Uh, and Christus Victor. If Probably governmental and Christus Victor are the two most popular in the church today, more than likely. Uh, not as many people affirm penal substitution as you think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, all right, now you, you, see, you see a tall pyramid. Some called it a Christmas tree. I reject that. That is not a Christmas tree uh, because I couldn't make it a shorter and fatter pyramid in that Word document. Every, we got all these? Okay. Um, but what we're going to talk about, begin to talk about, and we'll start and we'll pick up from, from here next week, is the idea of uh context 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 okay jesus is king jesus is king but underneath king jesus context is king all right so context is a little king and i swear if if y'all are like decorating that little thing to make it like a christmas tree or something get out all right Okay, in terms of context. All right, when we're, when we're doing, we, we talked about this in um, biblical interpretation and hermeneutics. We talked about this like week one. At the bottom, when we, are, when we are coming to the scriptures and we're trying to understand what does the scripture say, what is it teaching, okay, and then building upon that, to write theological conclusions, okay, obviously at the bottom, exegesis, like grammatical, historical exegesis of the scriptures, to understand historical context, understand grammar and syntax so that we're coming to a right understanding of that human author's particular context, right? But then... We cannot do exegesis without also doing biblical theology. So when John is talking about Jesus being a high priest, and Jesus is interceding on behalf of his people, as a high priest would do, and praying for them and offering sacrifice, like John is talking about high priesthood in light of biblical theology. John's a Jew. In the first century, he's not going to somehow start talking about priestly activity or sacrifice in a context that's different than the one of Old Testament. So what the Old Testament says about priesthood, what the Old Testament says about sacrifice, 
is going to inform how John thinks about these issues, along with Paul and the rest of the New Testament authors. So, we can do exegesis, but in so much of systematic theology today, and we're going to talk about this with um, spiritual gifts here coming up soon, with prophecy. Like, if you want to call some prophecy something different, prophecy is something that like is mixed with error in the New Testament, like Wayne Grudem would argue. You're talking about something that's detached from biblical theology. That is not prophecy in the Bible. That's prophecy that you've now redefined in order to make your particular doc, your doctrinal commitment work. Uh, but if Paul's talking about prophecy, Paul's talking about prophecy in light of Isaiah, Elijah, thus says the Lord. And so if we're going to do exegesis, we've got to do exegesis. That's important, grammatical, historical. But we cannot divorce it from biblical theology, which again is looking at any text of Scripture in light of the larger redemptive storyline, okay? This is going to become very, very, very important for the atonement if we're going to rightly understand how is Jesus a sacrifice? What does that mean? What does propitiation even mean? Why is that tied to mercy seat? What is mercy seat? What is obedience? Is Jesus' sacrifice laying down his life? Is that God's love and just setting an example for us? Or is that very, very intentional, which the Levitical sacrificial system gave us a picture of and pointed forward to so that we could understand Jesus' atonement? What is redemption? Are we talking about redeeming coupons? Or are we talking about redemption in light of, like, marketplace we talking about redemption in terms of redeeming people out of slavery like biblical theology has got to be a very very important part of our biblical interpretation um so on top of exegesis i mean really exegesis and biblical theology could be the same layer but uh it's what some authors talk about with with um Biblical interpretation is, is they call it something like the, the hermeneutical spiral where you have, essentially, you've got grammatical, historical exegesis, you've got biblical theology, systematic theology, and they're all spiraling down together onto the text and informing how you interpret. And I think that that's right. Um, <clears throat> but this is... this. This is a logical ordering, okay? We do exegesis, we build upon our exegesis with biblical theology, and then uh, on top of biblical theology, we're coming to systematic theology conclusions. So we want to come to right theological conclusions only after we have dug into the text, wrestled with the text, wrestled with the text in light of the entirety of the canon and redemptive history. Okay, you're going to come to wrong systematic theology conclusions. What does the Bible say about this? You're going to come to wrong systematic theology conclusions if you don't do biblical theology. Or if your idea of biblical theology is, okay, I've got more proof texts. I've got more texts that prove my position than you do. 
That is so much of limited atonement or definite atonement versus uh, unlimited atonement debates, like Arminian views versus Calvinist views. How do we argue for the atonement? It's got to be understood in light of exegesis and biblical theology. Otherwise, you're going to say, well, I've got 30 proof texts here that support that Jesus died for the world, and you've only got 10, which means I win. That is not how you do theology, which unfortunately is how so many people do theology. But then it's not just, um, it's not just systematic. Like, it's only once we've come to systematic theology conclusions that we can then start moving to ethics. So, like, Jesus uh, dying as your penal substitute and uh, definite atonement, you know, coming to right theological conclusions as it relates to um, definite atonement. I mean, you better believe that that's going to have an impact on Christian ethics. But we can't do Christian ethics un unless we've started doing exegesis. We've done it with biblical theology. We've come to write systematic theology conclusions, and then we start turning over to ethics. So, like, if we're going to talk about, oh, the, the Christian ethics of same-sex monogamy, well, we're not going to start with, well, God is love, and therefore... Because God is love, he wants you to be able to be happy, which is m many people arguing that. No, we're going to start at level of exegesis. We're going to understand the idea of marriage and one flesh union in light of exegesis, but in light of how the broader canon has represented it. Then we're going to come to, like, and this involves topology and promise fulfillment and all this stuff. Then we're going to come to write systematic theology conclusions about what marriage is, what divorce is, when that can happen. Who can engage in sexual intimacy? Who cannot? And then that turns over into Christian ethics. Okay, now how do I live? How do I live? And then on top of this, this is, this is where you have like pastoral ministry. You've got biblical counseling that's built upon the top of that. And then ultimately at the very top in that top little thing right here, which is so very important. And this is where the local church lives. It's not just pastors, it's not just professional counselors that are having to do these things correctly. But like the local church has got to do all of these kinds of things. I mean, at least for a handful of you here, like you're unmarried. And some of you probably want to get married. Uh, and the question then is like, okay, well, what does dating mean? Or is it courtship? Or is it something else? And you got to think through all of those kinds of issues. Think about what does the Scripture say? Come to write theological conclusions. And you can have pastors encouraging you, elders exhorting you and stuff. But at the end of the day, like you've got to come to these right conclusions and then live in light of them. Right? Which, I mean, I'm obviously here to help you. But So, <clears throat> when we're getting into these these ideas of obedience and sacrifice and propitiation, all this kind of stuff, justification, reconciliation. We, 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 cannot, we cannot take our cue uh, from the culture when we're trying to define what social justice is. Social justice is so very important to the Lord. 
we cannot jettison that. Social justice is of great importance to the Lord. And in fact, he, he commands Israel constantly to social justice in the Old Testament. But what is that social justice tied to? Well, if we're going to understand it in light of exegesis and biblical theology, social justice is, is them being faithful to the covenant, return to the covenant, care for the covenant community as, as the covenant demands, live in light of my covenant stipulations, be obedient to my covenant demands. And it's only then when we start understanding social justice and in light of these realities, will we then be able to take it into the church and it actually mean what the Bible means by it? We can't let Webster's, we can't let culture, we can't let any of these things define these terms for us. These, these terms are given in Scripture in particular contexts, and so if we're going to understand them rightly, we need to understand them in light of how the Bible is presenting them. Uh, which, <clears throat> unfortunately, is not as common as, as you would hope. Uh, we'll stop there. Any any kind uh, any questions about any of these things before uh, we close? We'll we'll jump into obedience, uh, working through those eight eight uh, themes. We'll jump into obedience next week and try and knock out at least three or four of them. We'll go through those eight. So just to preview, next couple of weeks, we'll go through all of those eight categories or themes. And that will outline for us the, the, the nature, the heart of the atonement. And then that'll be week, weeks nine, ten. It probably will be three weeks, if I'm guessing. Uh, but we'll knock those out, and then we'll spend at least a week or two talking about like the extent of the atonement. For whom did Jesus die? Um, all right. Any questions?